0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA Along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: Good morning to all of you. It's good to see all of you. We are studying the book of Revelation. This is our third week in that study, and today we will begin in verse four. That's how far we've gotten in two weeks. We're not going to get a whole lot further this morning. Because last week we stopped in the middle of a verse because verse 6 and verse 7 are going to take the majority of the morning because what I want you to see is that John relies so very heavily on the Old Testament. As I told you in the introduction to the book, John's primary audience, his primary ministry, is to the circumcised. Paul tells us that the same way that Paul and Barnabas went to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. Peter, John, and James were apostles to the Jews. And so this book of Revelation is very, very Jewish. And the better you know your Old Testament the better you're going to understand what John has written. And you can tell that John intends for this to be read by a largely Jewish audience because of the amount of Old Testament references that he makes. References that wouldn't mean anything to Gentiles. And we're going to see that this morning. And in fact, he's going to speak in a sort of shorthand where he just mentions these things that reach back to Daniel, that reach back to Zechariah, these things that reach back even to things that Jesus said during his ministry. John is going to say, once he tells them what his situation is, he's going to say that he was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The word of God And the testimony of Jesus Christ. The word of God when John was on Patmos was just what we would call the Old Testament. That was their scripture. The New Testament, though the letters were written and the letters were circulating, he had not yet written Revelation. The whole canon of the New Testament was not complete yet. And so John sees those two as particular categories. There's the word of God, but then there's also the testimony of Jesus Christ because he is out testifying, witnessing that Jesus is the satisfaction and the completion of everything that's written in the scriptures, in the word of God, in the Old Testament. In verse 7, John is going to refer to Daniel and Zechariah in the Old Testament, and he's going to make reference to something Jesus taught, so he's going to, in a single verse, encapsulate what he's on Patmos for, which is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, all wrapped up in a single verse. But first we have to do a little bit of mathematics study. Starting in verse 4, what we read is, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. How many churches is John writing to? Seven. Seven. Are you sure about that? Do you feel confident about that? Do you feel confident? Seven. So what about the fact that in that same verse he said that there are seven spirits who are before the throne of God? Hmm. How many spirits? Seven. So are you sure about that? What it says. Are you confident that it's actually seven? Because the Greek word being used here is the word hepta. And the definition of the word hepta is seven. In fact, it's Seven churches enumerated and named by name seven churches. Why am I pounding away at that? Because this is the first place where John introduces numbers to the book of Revelation. And you're going to see a whole lot of numbers in the book of Revelation. And people argue about how John is using numbers in the book of Revelation, especially when you get to chapter 20 and you're introduced to a thousand years. And people will argue, well, that's spiritual. That's not an actual mathematic number. Except I argue, and we'll show you, as we work our way through this book, that John uses numbers specifically and mathematically. So when you get later to the thousand years, there's no reason to read that as anything other than a thousand years. Because that's the exact word. That John uses when I asked you how many churches you said seven why because that's what it says how many spirits seven because that's what it says when we get to the 144,000 how many is that it's 144,000 because that's what it says and the same way that John is going to say seven churches and then enumerate them and name them by name, and it comes up to seven? seven? The same way that he says there are seven spirits before the throne of God, and last week we read Isaiah describing the seven spirits that are before the throne of God. He enumerated them, and there were exactly seven. John uses numbers specifically and mathematically. So I know at this point it seems kind of silly that I'm pounding away at this, but notice that John says seven and then enumerates them and names them by name. Same thing happens when you get to the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and then he enumerates them and names them, names all 12 tribes that are represented there. In other words, he's using 144,000 mathematically. When he gets to a 1,000, I'm going to prove to you that he's using that number mathematically. Because here's the basic rule. The Bible says what it means, and it means what it says. And if it doesn't mean what it says, it can mean Anything. anything. We have no idea what it means. We have no idea what God was trying to tell us because the words he chose to use... Apparently, didn't mean what they say. And then it's a jump ball. Then we have no idea what the Bible says. Instead, we're going to follow again the face value hermeneutic of reading the Bible exactly for what it says and then aligning our thinking with what it says rather than making what it says bend to our preferred thinking. Why seven? Because there were seven extant actual churches in the circular route from Ephesus, through the trade route, and back to Ephesus. And if you leave Ephesus and head northeast, the first church that you're going to hit indeed is Smyrna. The churches that are listed in the book of Revelation are listed in order of how you would come across them if you were following that trade route and made it back to Ephesus. And who was the bishop of Ephesus? John, the very writer of this letter. So it makes perfect sense that God would have John write the revelation to those seven churches so that it would be maintained in perpetuity, so that we would have it to this very day, so that we can continue to read it and study it, because John distributed it not to one person, but to seven different churches. That's why we still have it. How many churches? Seven. Seven. How many spirits? Seven. Seven. What does that mean? Seven. seven. That's all that means. Have I pounded away at that enough for one morning? Are you clear? Okay. Yeah, I got the point. You got the point. Good. I feel good about that. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. From him who is, and was, and who is to come. In verse 8, God himself says, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega. That's the first, that's the last. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's saying, I am the beginning, I am the end, And everything in between is all about me. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. Says the Lord God. Says Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Very specific language. El Shaddai, a proper name that God gives himself to say that I have all the power, I have all the might. I am completely sovereign. I do whatever I want to do. After all, I am almighty. Now, if God is almighty, how much might does that leave behind for you? Zero. None. That'd be none. God has all the power. You have no power, regardless of what subject you want to discuss. If you want to discuss, your life and how long you're going to live and if you get sick and if you're going to survive. It's all up to God. He has all the power. You have exactly none. If you want to talk about salvation, how people get saved, it has to be by the power of God. He has all the power. You have none. And God gives himself that name. I am God Almighty. Later on in the same chapter, however, Look at verse 17. He laid his right hand on me, that's John speaking, and he said to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I am the first and the last. In other words, Jesus took the name that God appropriated to himself, the description that God gives of himself, I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the alpha, I'm the omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. Jesus shows up and says, me too. I'm the first, I'm the last. Jesus just equated himself with the Lord God Almighty. Now, if he's an honest man, if he is in fact the very Son of God, then there's no ego, no hubris in that statement. It's a statement of fact. I am God. The same way that you see and read about Yahweh throughout your scripture, the same way that you know about God and his attributes from the scripture, the same way that you understand that he is the almighty one, he's the one you pray to, he's the one who's in charge of everything, that's also me, says Jesus. So Jesus makes himself God. Why is that important? Because this book is the apocalypsis. This book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And part of his representation of himself, part of his unveiling and revelation of himself is, I'm God. In fact, no man, he says, no man comes to the Father but by me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. He equates himself with the Lord God Almighty. And so you have to face the fact that that is how Jesus sees himself. That's how he is represented in scripture, and that is the way that we have to think about him. Again, what does the Bible say? It says that Jesus is God. And we have to consider him that, we have to think of him as that, we have to honor him as God, we pray to him as God, we worship him, we praise him as God. That tells us a lot about the Trinity. Because not only do we see, back here in verse 4, grace to you from him who was and who is to come, that's God, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, there's the Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead, Father, Son, and Spirit are all represented. You don't get more than four verses into the book of Revelation and you are introduced to the Father and the Son and the Spirit and their unity that they can use the same language, the same nomenclature about themselves. And they are all collectively God. That teaches us the reality of the Trinity. That was all introduction, just so you all know. Now now we can bear down on the text. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. Here's his description of Jesus. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's where we stopped last week. The next word in verse 6 is and. And he has made us to be a kingdom priests to his God and father. As we continue through the book of Revelation, we're going to have to talk a lot about kingdom and kingdom language, because as we've been reading in Isaiah on Wednesday nights, there is this promise to national Israel of a glorious kingdom to come. There is this promise in the Davidic covenant that David himself would always have a descendant of his sitting on a throne, ruling over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. That's the kingdom. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus spent 40 days talking to his apostles about the kingdom. And at the end of that conversation, they asked him, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Because after All that time of talking about it, their concept of kingdom was still, it belongs to Israel. Because that's what the whole Old Testament says. The kingdom belongs to Israel. And even after listening to Jesus talk about the kingdom, their question was, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And his answer was a time answer, because they asked a time question. They said, are you going to do it now? His answer was, it's not up to you to know when. He didn't say, no, I'm not going to do it. He didn't say, no, you guys misunderstand. What he said is, not yet. In other words, the kingdom still belongs to Israel. So now here you have John, who is an apostle to Israel, to the circumcised, and here he introduces the concept of kingdom. And he says, I am fellow heir with you in the kingdom. Okay, to all of his Jewish listeners, they know what kingdom he's talking about. They're all responding scripturally to the promise of a kingdom for Israel. However, at this very moment, God is sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning, and he is the sovereign over his creation. We are, after all, a sovereign grace church. We believe that God is completely in control. In other words, he is acting right now as a king over his kingdom. So there are a couple of different aspects, a couple of different ways that we can look at this kingdom. All we know at this moment, whether we're talking about the historic kingdom that belongs to Israel or whether we're talking about the kingdom of God over which he rules everything, either one of those kingdoms, John can say, that Jesus Christ promised a kingdom. But even more interestingly, promised a kingdom of priests. Where is that promise? Turn to Exodus 19. If you go back to the beginning of your Bible, the first book is Genesis, the second book is Exodus. I'm particularly interested in verses 3 to 6, but we can start reading from verse 1. This is as the children of Israel are delivered from Egypt, and they're heading toward the wilderness, and they get to Sinai. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountains. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's the kind of language only a sovereign can use, by the way. I delivered you, I bore you up, and I delivered you to myself. I did all of it, you did Nothing. none, because I am <laughs> almighty. I'm the one with all the power, I'm the one with all the authority. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. What did he do to the Egyptians? destroyed them, drowned them, got rid of Israel's enemies. And I like the way he did it. First, he said, go to the Egyptians and borrow all the gold, all the jewelry, all the fabric that you can get from them. And then he drowned their debtors. This, this is a plan that I wish God was willing to implement more often. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." And these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So this is language that is specific to the sons of Israel, to national Israel. What national Israel knows for sure is that they're not priests. What do priests do? Prophets of God speak from God to the people. Priests sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. They stand between God and the people. One of them, the prophets, listen to what God says and tell the people. So that is from God through the prophet to the people. But the priests take the sacrifices of the people and go pray to God for the sins of the people on behalf of the people. And God decided that one tribe of Israel, the Levites, was the only tribe from which priests could come. And so you've got 11 tribes that know for certain they are not priests. In other words, they can't go sacrifice themselves. They can't go plead to God on their own behalf. They have to have an intercessor. They have to have a priest. And here God is promising them, if you keep my covenant, I will make you not only a kingdom, all those kingdom promises count, I'm going to establish you as a kingdom, but now I'm going to tell you what kind of kingdom you're going to be. You're going to be a holy and a righteous kingdom, a holy, righteous nation that is filled with priests who can come to me, each of you individually on your own, and come and sacrifice to me, and come commune with me, and come do all the things that you used to require a son of Levi to do. Now that's the language that John picks up here in Revelation because he knows that promise from the book of Exodus. And because he knows the Exodus promise and he knows the promise that is given to Israel that they will be a kingdom of priests, in verse 6 he says, he has made us, the NASB adds two words, they add to be, but the original text says he has made us a kingdom Priests to his God and Father. So this is something that Jesus has actually accomplished through the finished work of Christ, through the blood sacrifice, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He has accomplished everything necessary to allow every individual to go to God individually because we already have a permanent intercessor. That's why the writer of Hebrews refers to Christ as the best high priest the final high priest, the better high priest. He is the high priest, and we are all collectively priests of God, which means that we can go now individually, singularly, to God, and we don't need anybody from the tribe of Levi to do it for us. Do you understand the depth of what John has just said here? Now because of the authority of Christ, which is why we pray in Jesus' name That means through the authority, through the finished work of Christ, we can now go to God the Father Almighty, the one who encases himself in a light that no man approaches, the one that is holy and righteous and spotless and pure and unblemished, untouched by sin. That one, measly little, wormy little you, get to go into his presence and find grace and call him Abba, Father, and find that he has actually taken all of your sin collectively and thrown it behind his back, cast it as far as the east is from the west, never to be brought up again, not because of anything you did, but because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on your behalf. And that's the importance of he's making us a kingdom of priests. Beautiful language. He, Jesus, has made us, a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. So since he is all that, since he has done all that, since he is the faithful witness, since he is the firstborn from the dead, since he is king of kings, the ruler of all the kings of the earth, since he did love us and release us from our sins through his own blood, and instead of being guilty sinners, he is now making us into a kingdom of priests, because of all that, John can say, to him, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That word amen there is actually a Hebrew word. Amen. And what it means is, verily it will be so. This promise of a kingdom of priests... This promise of a glorious future for us collectively, all we who belong to Christ now through Christ's finished work and sacrifice, we're going to have entrance into the kingdom of God the Father, and we will all be priests of God. And how do I know that's true? The amen right there. John says, I didn't make that up. This is right from the text. This is right from the promises that God made to Israel and so to him is all the praise, is all the glory, and all the dominion. Okay, a moment ago, I emphasized that God calls himself the Almighty. He's the one who has all the might. He's the one who has all the power. Jesus is the one who has dominion. What does dominion mean? I mean, we use the word dominate. What does it mean to dominate somebody? To lord over them utterly and completely to have them in subjection to you. That's what dominion means. So, so far, what have we learned this morning? We've learned God is absolutely sovereign. He's completely almighty. He's the beginning and the end. And then Jesus picks up the same language and says, I'm also the beginning and the end. I'm also worthy of praise. And I also have absolute authority and dominion. That is how Jesus not only sees himself, it's how he describes himself. It's the reality of who he is and what he's like. And by the way, the first thing John said about him is, he is the faithful witness. In other words, he doesn't lie. If he says it, it's true. And what he has just told you is, I have absolute dominion. So what is your job then? How should you react to that? Your reaction to that should be to put your forehead in the dust in front of him and recognize him for exactly who he is. And in fact, in a moment, we may or may not get to it this morning, John is going to see Jesus for who he is, with his eyes of fire, his feet of burnished brass, and his hair like wool. And when John sees him, he falls down in front of him as dead, I contend. That the more you know about Christ, and the more you see of Christ in his revelation of himself here, the more you're going to be drawn to recognize that you are slave to him, that you are humbled before him, and that he is the beginning, he is the end, he is the first, he is the last, he is the alpha, he is the omega, and he has absolute dominion over absolutely everyone and everything, and that includes you. Which means you either fall before him in humble obedience, or you rebel against him, and he will judge you. And those are the two categories. And there's nothing in between. There's either those who are redeemed by the finished work of Jesus Christ, or there are those who are just waiting for the judgment of Christ. But either way, he has dominion. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory. In the Old Testament, only God is considered glorious. But here, to him, to Christ is the glory and the absolute dominion, and he has it forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7 then starts, with a phrase that, again, his Jewish reading audience would be very familiar with. One of the primary descriptions of God in the Old Testament is that God appears in the clouds and that he rides on a throne that is actually a chariot. He has clouds that have wheels within wheels. When he appears to Ezekiel, he's riding on this this heavenly chariot. And here John describing Christ says, behold, he, Christ, is coming in the clouds. That is the language, the imagery of sovereign God. And yet John applies it here to Christ. Turn, if you would, to the book of Daniel. John, speaking like an Old Testament prophet here, makes these references back to Old Testament prophets. We are in the book of Daniel. We're going to start in Daniel chapter 7. We are particularly interested in verse 13. Oh, but I'm going to start reading at verse 9. I kept looking, says Daniel, until thrones were set up, And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who is the Ancient of Days in that text? God. God the Father. God Almighty. He is the Ancient of Days. But you will notice that the language with which Daniel now describes him is really, really similar to the language that John is going to use to describe Christ. These parallels keep occurring. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture. Was like white snow, and his hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were burning fire. So he's got a throne that has wheels in the clouds. This heavenly chariot that God rides on. Verse 10. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the court sat, and the books were open. Do you know why there were all the myriads and the myriads and the thousands and the thousands in front of him? Because this is the moment of judgment. This is the moment when God is going to judge every individual, and they're all gathered before him. Verse 11 says, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the little horn was speaking. We haven't talked in any extent yet about the little horn, but he's going to show up in Revelation too, just like in Daniel. I kept listening because of the boastful words which the little horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up. To the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, to him was given dominion. Now, do you see why John says all dominion belongs to him? He's reaching back to Daniel and saying, This is the gift of God to his Son, that he has absolute authority. He has absolute dominion and glory and a kingdom. Oh, what a surprise! (laughs) John has already said, to him belongs the glory, the dominion, the kingdom. It all belongs to him. But he was referencing Daniel when he said that. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom so that all the peoples, all the nations, men of every language, would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. John just said it's a dominion that goes on forever and ever. Same thing. Where did John learn that? He wasn't making it up. It wasn't novel. He wasn't creating new theology or new descriptions of Christ. He was describing Christ the same way he's described by the Old Testament prophets. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all the peoples, the nations, people of every language will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He's coming in clouds. Now, the next thing that John is going to tell us, and you don't have to turn there. In fact, if you would, turn to Matthew 24, because we're going to plug in another piece. But the next thing that John is going to tell us is that, behold, he's coming in the clouds, just like Daniel described him, and every eye will see him. They're either going to see him when he gathers his church, or they're going to see him in judgment. Matthew 24, let me catch up with you real quick. Here's the way that Jesus describes that return when every eye is going to see him. I'm going to start reading at verse 23 of Matthew 24. If anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ or there he is, don't believe him. Christ is saying, I'm not going to be in some hidden place. I'm not going to be on the earth, in the desert, in the woods, hidden in a forest somewhere. In fact, I'm going to come back in such a way that absolutely everybody's going to see me, so don't trust somebody if they say to you, hey, look, we found the Christ. He's in Brazil. There is that guy down there who claims to be the return of Jesus. Hey, we found the Christ. He's the Bahu Allah, who claimed that he was the return of Christ. There have been many pretenders through the years who have said that we're Christ. Christ himself said, if somebody says that to you, don't believe them. Because when I come back, everybody's going to know it. When the king of kings returns to his creation, no one's going to miss it. If anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe them, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he is in the inner room. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Everybody's going to see it. In fact, the description that we read in Joel, the description that Peter repeats on the day of Pentecost, is that the sun and the moon and the stars are not going to give their light. And against that backdrop of perfect blackness in the sky, there's going to come something that's called the sign of the Son of Man. And it's going to be so magnificent, so bright against that black backdrop, that everybody's going to see it. The same way that if there is lightning that rumbles and rattles across the sky, everybody under the sky sees it. Jesus described it that way and said, like the lightning is that comes from way over there and goes to way over there, that's what it's going to be like when I come back. I'm not going to be hiding. I'm not going to be in an inner room. I'm not going to be in the desert. I'm not going to be in the wilderness. Don't believe anybody who tells you that. When I come back, it's going to be so cataclysmic that nobody's going to miss it. Tom, if you would, turn to Revelation 6.16 for a moment. And the rest of us are going to go back to Revelation 1. When Christ comes back, everybody's going to see it. Is everybody going to be rejoicing over the fact that he's back? No. Absolutely not, because he's coming back, just like Daniel described. He's coming back in judgment. The thrones are going to be set. The judgment is absolutely going to happen. And you either belong to Jesus Christ, and he has come to get you, by his grace, in his kindness, he is protecting you from the wrath of God, which is why Paul would say that we are not appointed to wrath. That's either your state, because you're in Christ and Christ is in you, or you're going to be one of the people that Tom is about to read about. Tom's going to read Revelation six sixteen. 16. Uh, let me start at 15. It says... That... No, I didn't... Say... No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. <laughs> Go the ahead. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones... And the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone
0: slave and free.
1: Hold on. How many people is that? Everybody. That's everybody. He went to pains to say everybody. Free, bond, rich, poor, people in power, people who have nothing. Everybody. Read that verse again.
0: Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand?
1: Okay, well, in that verse, the description is everybody's going to see them. There's nobody who's going to miss it. There's nobody who's going to say to their neighbor, anything happened yesterday? the day after Jesus comes back. Everybody's going to know it. Everybody's going to see it, and they're going to be so aware of it that John says they're going to run for the rocks and the caves, the dens of the earth, and they're going to cry to the rocks and say, fall on us because crushing death is better than being given into the hands of the one who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. So is there any question that everybody's going to see it? Behold, says Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming. He's coming in the clouds, the clouds of glory that only God in the Old Testament represented himself as having. Christ himself is going to have that. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And now a really interesting detail. Even those who pierced him who's that Those who pierced him are the Jews they too are going to look on him when he returns and John describes it this way all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him There's going to be sadness. There's going to be people crying. There's going to be people wishing for death rather than confronting him. And the Jews are going to look on the very one that they were responsible for killing. How do I know that? Because John here didn't make anything up. He took that from Zechariah, another Old Testament prophet. So now turn to the book of Zechariah. And we're going to go to Zechariah chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David. Who is the house of David? The lineage of David, the kingship of David. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. And of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over the firstborn. Okay, let's talk about Zechariah for just a moment. Zechariah is prophesying in Israel after the Jews have returned from the Babylonian captivity. As they're rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple, Zechariah comes along and starts prophesying to them. He's roughly 520 years before Jesus gets on the planet. And his prophecy of Jesus is the one whom they're going to pierce. Is it any surprise then that when Jesus was killed, They nailed him to a cross. First they scourged him. Then they put nails through his hands and through his feet, piercing him. And then to guarantee he was dead, a Roman soldier put a spear in his side and blood and water ran out. In other words, Christ was continually, constantly, repeatedly, in various many different ways, pierced. Even the flogging, the beating that he took, Roman soldiers would create like a cat of nine tails. It was a leather strap that had pieces of rock and sharp metals woven into it so that when they would whip somebody's back, it pierced their back, tore their skin. So it started out with him being pierced in the beatings, and then he was pierced on the cross, and then he was pierced with a spear, and 500 years before any of that happened, before crucifixion was even a form of killing people, something that the Persians came up with, but they used to just tie their victims to posts. The Romans came along and said, that doesn't look painful enough. I'll bet we could improve on that. And they introduced nails, and nailing people to chunks of wood. And that hadn't happened when Zechariah wrote this. And Zechariah described Jesus as the one they were going to pierce. And he put it in the context of the Jews are going to look at him, who they pierced, who they killed, and they're going to weep, and they're going to cry, and they're going to mourn. And why are they going to recognize Christ when he returns? Because God himself is going to pour out on them. The inhabitants of Jerusalem, clearly the Jews, pour out on them the spirit of grace and of supplication, of crying before God, of begging before God. He's going to change their hard hearts. He's going to change their blind eyes. And they are going to weep and mourn. In fact, the mourning is described starting in verse 11 of Zechariah 12. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the morning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Does that sound familiar, by the way? What's the plain of Megiddo? In the book of Revelation, we're going to read about the war that breaks out in Armageddon. What a surprise. The Zachariah, when talking about the Christ whom they were going to pierce, also says that the morning is going to be like the morning that takes place in the very place where the final cataclysm is going to take place. Gee, almost like God knew what he was talking about. Like he had a plan from the beginning. Oh, yeah, he's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and Omega. And so he can say hundreds of years in advance what it is he's going to do. And he can drop all these little hints along the way. And the land is going to mourn every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself. And their wives by themselves. And the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves, they are all going to mourn and weep when they recognize that that's Jesus And we killed him. Mm -hmm. We're the people who said, let his blood be on our hands and on our children. And yet, those are the very same people that God is going to pour out an abundance of grace on. So that they can recognize their Messiah. So that they see the Christ that they have denied for all these centuries. How does John put it? I'm back in Revelation. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So in that single verse, what did John just do? John first validated the book of Daniel. Daniel. Through the years, especially starting at the end of the 1800s the end of the nineteenth century, there was a movement called the German higher critics. those who would criticize the Bible, they were especially critical of anything that was prophetic or anything that said that miracles happened in days past because they said well where 's that stuff now since we don 't see that stuff now, it must not ever have existed and they would and they would go through the Bible and eliminate those parts that they thought were impossible. And boy, when they started contradicting and criticizing the Bible, they made a beeline for the book of Daniel because it's just impossible for Daniel to have been written when it says it was written and then to have known all this stuff it knows. We're going to have to spend quite a bit of time in the book of Daniel as we go through the book of Revelation because it's astounding that Daniel knew what he knew and wrote what he wrote only if an absolutely sovereign God who decrees the future was speaking to Daniel only then could Daniel possibly know the stuff he knew. So the critics would criticize the book of Daniel and yet Jesus verified Daniel as a prophet and in fact in Matthew 24 As he's describing the things to come, he says, as you'll see in Daniel the prophet. So Jesus verified the book of Daniel. Here John verified the book of Daniel. That would mean critics are wrong. So not only did he verify the book of Daniel, he verified what Jesus himself declared. Every eye's going to see him. Everyone's going to behold him. Everyone's going to know when Jesus comes back, they're either going to see him and go meet him in the clouds and forever be with the Lord, Paul says comfort one another with those words, or the people are going to be completely discomforted and taken into the judgment of God, and they're going to run for the rocks and the caves and the dens, and they're going to say, kill me and deliver me from the wrath of the Lamb. He's either the good shepherd to you, or he's the wrathful lamb to you. And there's nothing in between. John just verified that. And Zechariah predicted Christ to come by giving us these very specific details that weren't even in existence yet about how Jesus was going to be pierced and that was going to be the mode of his death and the people who were responsible for it were going to look on him and mourn and John validated that. And he did it all in one sentence. But what I really hope that you'll see here is that John is very dependent on the scripture. He's not making anything up. That method of approaching Revelation by looking at the Old Testament documents that are already there and then seeing how John is just validating and repeating what is there is what we're going to do when we see the symbols that are coming up. The book of Revelation sometimes can appear mind-boggling. But what you're going to discover is pretty much all the symbols are all in the Old Testament. And so we're going to be able to understand them by just comparing Scripture with Scripture. And this, verse 7, is the first place where I think you saw how we can do that. Verse 8. I am the Alpha, and the Omega. I can't get past those first two words. Ego I me, I am. That is the very name that God introduced himself by. When Moses came across the burning bush, when Moses didn't even know God, and he had run away from Pharaoh and living on the backside of nowhere and had married Sapporah, and was tending to Jethro's sheep and sees a burning bush. And a voice speaks to him and says, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses asks a very logical question, since Egypt is absolutely chock full of gods. They've got a god for everything. They've got a, got a, they have a god of frogs. They have a god of bugs. They have a, they have a god of crocodiles. They have a god of the Nile. They have a sun god. They have a god for everything. So Moses asks the logical question, well, who are you? If some of these people belong to you, and I'm going to go say to Pharaoh, uh, a god said, let my people go. The logical question is, which god? Who are you? And God's only answer, you go tell Pharaoh, I am. That's the name that God gives himself. I am. In that single little name, he has just declared that all the other gods of the world am not. There are no other M's. There's just not gods. There's just useless, pointless idols of wood and stone. He's the only God who actually exists. He is the I am God. I find it interesting, then, that he would say, I am, and then expand who he is. I am the beginning. I am the alpha. I am the ending. I was there before everything. I'll be there after everything, says the Lord God, who is right now, at this very moment. He is. Who was as far back as you can possibly think he was. You don't have the ability to think eternally. You might be able to sort of conceive of eternity future in some kind of biblical terms, in some kind of spiritual terms. Gee, we get to heaven. That'll be nice. I don't really know what I'll do every day. It's eternal life. That's going to be tough. I can use a nap once in a while. And so I'm just, I'm going to be living there for You can kind of conceive of, can any of you conceive of eternity past? What was it like before God said, let there be light? What was that like? Especially a God who dwells in light. We have no conception of eternity past. And yet God says, I was. Even when there was nothing, I was. Before everything, I was, and I am, and I am him who is to come. Oh, I like that part. Look, you either are really, really happy to hear that that God in Jesus Christ is coming, because you're looking forward to actually seeing your Lord and Savior. You're looking forward to that whole new body thing. Oh, sign me up. You're either really looking forward to the return of God in Jesus Christ or it scares you to death. And you're ready to run for the rocks and the caves and say, hide me from him. I'm here to tell you, if you get nothing else out of this morning, run to Christ. So that you too will learn to worship and praise and love And glorify him so that you can anticipate his return so that you can look forward knowing that that's going to be a moment of astounding grace and astounding power and astounding dominion. And won't it be great, I just, won't it be great if he shows up and you're able to say to him, hey, I was just thinking of you. I was just thinking about how much I love your appearing. And now here you are, my Lord, my Savior, take me home. Or you're going to run. Don't run from him, run to him. Because he is, after all, the Almighty. He is, after all, the one who has complete dominion.